Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 34, The Borgia vs. The Prophet. So my only excuse for being late this week is that, honestly, I caught Savernola fever. Seriously, my script for this episode just kept getting longer and longer, and I kept finding new tidbits of research that I felt like I had to include. I really, really wanted to wrap up Savernola's story in this episode, but I had to split it. I just like to think there is something special about the fact that centuries after his death, Savernola is still big enough of a figure that he took over a podcast that's supposed to be about the Medici. But first, there's something I wasn't able to fit into the narrative in previous episodes, but it's still something I should probably address since it's one of the few times, if not the only time, our boy Piero de' Medici gets mentioned in the wider world outside the realm of historians and Renaissance buffs. There's an article for the British newspaper The Telegraph by Malcolm Moore with the headline, Medici Philosopher's Mystery Death Solved. Both the philosopher Pico della Mirandola and Pietro's former tutor, the poet and scholar Poliziano, both died in their early 30s at around the same time, the fall of 1494, after the downfall and flight of Pietro de' Medici. The news article describes a group of forensic scientists who examined the remains of Manandola and Poliziano and found they died of arsenic poisoning. Silvano Vincetti, the cultural committee member who was behind the research project, interpreted the results as suggesting that Manandola and Poliziano were both poisoned. Vincetti went on to suggest that Pietro de' Medici ordered the hit, possibly with the help of his former secretary. Cristoforo de Calamajore. Vincetti speculates that this was because Mirandola and Poliziano ended up becoming supporters of Savonarola. Now, I'm not going to delve into all the details because I really don't want this entire episode to end up being about it. I'm already giving Savonarola more minutes than I originally intended for. For starters, though, there was another scientific paper published by another team of forensic scientists led by Gianni Galello and Elisabetta Citti titled Poisoning Histories in the Italian Renaissance that disputed the earlier conclusion that Poliziano had actually been poisoned. But the point I want to stress is that it's just really unlikely that Pietro would have had anyone killed for being supporters of Savonarola. If you've been following the narrative, you probably know Savonarola was at least neutral toward the Medici even for a couple of months after Pietro fled the city. And it was even longer before he truly became a major force in Florentine politics. More importantly, he had nothing to do with the collapse of the Medici regime in 1494. If Pietro did have the means to have someone poisoned from all the way in Venice, it wouldn't have been some philosopher who was a client of his dad's and who had a 
weird religious awakening recently that made him a Savonarola supporter, but never did anything to hurt the interests of the Medici family. It would have been someone like Pietro Caponi or Francesco Valori, who were members of the Medici party, but turned against Pietro and played important roles in the new regime. So what did happen? I honestly wish I could say. One theory I read was that Mirandola and Poliziano were lovers and committed suicide out of some kind of pact, but the author admitted it was speculation. Nonetheless, I do think suicide is plausible. Or Mirandola died from an accidental overdose since arsenic was used as an ingredient in some medicines, and Cristoforo is said to have given him some medicine because he had been very ill. It's even possible someone did deliberately poison Mirandola, but that person and their motive had been lost to history. The bottom line is I don't see why Pietro de' Medici or even just someone loyal to the family would have even bothered killing Mirandola. Let's talk about someone who was definitely in the crosshairs. Savonarola. I ended last episode talking about how by February of 1497, Savonarola was at the height of his popularity and political influence. Some historians intentionally are not right about this period as if Savonarola was basically the dictator of Florence, but this wasn't the case. He was still very much dependent on Francesco Valori and the Great Council. Also, from almost the start, he had to deal with a fierce opposition from within. Like with the old Florentine Republic, different factions emerged. These were still very unlike the political parties of today. However, while the old factions largely broke down according to family alliances, social classes, and economic interests, these new factions were for the most part defined by whose side they were on. I mentioned the Whalers, the Piagnone, who were signed on to Savonarola's program. Then there were the Arabiati, the enraged, who hated the Medici but also wanted to rid the new republic of Savonarola and return to the humanist spirit of Lenenzo the Magnificent's times. And then we had the Bigi, the Greys, who wanted to revive the Medici regime. It didn't help that Savonarola had, by that point, not only lost, but turned against his most powerful protector, King Charles VIII of France. After enjoying himself in settling affairs in his new kingdom to his satisfaction, and knowing that the Pope's new Holy League was rallying forces against him, Charles VIII had marched northward in the spring of 1495 to return to France. Along the way, he hoped to pressure the Pope into crowning him King of Naples, but he found that the papal court had fled to the heavily fortified city of Orvieto, barely having enough funds to make it across the Alps with his army, much less go to war against the Pope. Charles marched on. He didn't have much luck in Tuscany either. Ambassadors from Pisa begged him to make the new Republic of Pisa a French protectorate and supply them with enough soldiers to defend themselves from Florence while envoys from Florence demanded he make good on his promise to return Pisa and Livorno to Florentine control. Charles only made empty promises to both sides and kept going, 
not knowing what was waiting for him. Duke Ludovico of Milan had been rightfully afraid that Charles was secretly plotting to replace him with Charles's own cousin, Louis d'Orléans, who you might remember had a claim to the Duchy of Milan through his ancestor, Valentina Visconti. It didn't help that Charles had a regiment led by Louis d'Orléans stationed in Asti, a town in the Piedmont region right on the border with Milan. When Charles received word that Ludovico had switched sides, he ordered Louis to keep Asti defended. But Louis, clearly eager to get his hands on Milan, defied Charles's orders and attacked the city of Nevada on the Milanese border, an assault that ended in disaster for the French. So Charles was even less prepared when a joint Milanese, Venetian, and Papal army confronted him near the town of Fornovo in the Romagna. The battle was fought in the midst of a raging thunderstorm, with significant losses on both sides. Depending on who you asked, it ended with either a stalemate or a narrow French victory. Even if it was a victory for the French, though, all they won for their blood and tears was the breathing room to make their way safely across the Alps. Charles lacked the funds to return to Italy anytime soon, and he soon learned that a Spanish naval expedition had already occupied his precious Naples, and put the extremely popular King Fernando II back on his throne. Charles VIII had no choice but to sign a treaty with Pope Alexander's Holy League, at least to buy himself some time. Florence was completely left to fend for itself. In a sermon made soon after the treaty, Savonarola blasted a certain person as, quote, stupid and idle. And in an incredibly low blow, he prophesied that this person would die just like he predicted the death of his son. No one in the know doubted that this person Savonarola declined to name was his former friend and champion, Charles VIII, whose infant son had indeed recently died. But Savonarola's anger must have been driven by fear. His prophesied savior had abandoned him leaving him completely dependent on the good graces of Florence's notoriously faction-ridden government. Sure, he was still beloved by the public, but would that last? Meanwhile, all the way in Venice, Pietro had been keeping up with the news, particularly of Charles VIII retreating to France and being too in debt to reclaim Naples, and Florence having tense relations with the Pope. It was not a good sign for Pietro when, on January 25th, the Great Council tried to stamp out the Bigi by passing a law exiling anyone who had worked directly for the Medici. But then, after Francesco Valori's term as Gonfalonieri ended, a government dominated by the very party that law was designed to target came to power. Also, Pope Alexander signaled that he would welcome Pietro's return to Florence although, of course, this did not translate into much money or direct support. Nonetheless, Pietro saw a chance. Still, he insisted that he would not return to Florence unless the Gonfalonieri and the Signora invited him, although some of the coded letters between Pietro and the papal court suggest he did not completely rule out being restored to power through a mercenary-backed coup. Indeed, when the Bigi were stalled in the Great Council by the other factions, Pietro decided to roll the dice. 
Not learning anything from the time he practically handed the keys to his kingdom over to Charles VIII, Pietro struck a deal with Florence's great rival, the Republic of Siena, in exchange for a promise to hand over a key fortress on the Sienese border if he got his family's invisible throne back. Siena would supply Pietro with a small military regiment that would accompany him to the walls of Florence. Pietro hoped this would be enough of a spark to inspire revolt. His family could ride back to power. Unfortunately, time was not on the side. Heavy rains delayed Pietro, giving the anti-Medici members of the Signora enough time to rally support and have prominent citizens, known to still be staunch Medici partisans, arrested and detained on trumped-up charges. While they were kept imprisoned in the palace of the Signora, an executioner and his assistants walked among them holding axes, chains, and ropes for hanging to keep them cowed and the city militias were called up in order to patrol the city in case the revolt still did break out. On April 28th, Pietro and his retinue arrived at the city walls. Pietro probably did expect that, like his ancestor Cosimo, he would be welcomed into the city by his supporters. Instead, the only people who greeted him were an armed force larger than his own, headed by a group of staunch anti-Medici politicians who shouted to him that the Signora had approved of a 4,000 florin bounty on his head. Without a single battle, the counter-coup was squashed. Pietro slunk back to Siena. As for Savonarola, he had his own threats to deal with. Some people in the pro-Medici camp did see him as an obstacle, but I think it's important to remember that there were those in the church who hated him too. One anti-Savonarola poem reads, I say there comes a wind from Rome that will soon blow out your name in light. Meanwhile, a monk from a monastery out in the Tuscan countryside, Angelo da Vallombrosa, offered to kill Savonarola with his own hands and called upon the children of the city to stone him to death. Sometime in the middle of the night before one of his sermons, a gang broke into the cathedral smeared feces all over the pulpit Savonarola was supposed to use, covered it with the decaying skin of a donkey for good measure, and then drove nails up below the lectern, hoping Savonarola, who was known to bang his hands against the lectern during his sermons, would stab his hands on them. Savonarola even had a rival prophet, a nun named Madalena. She claimed God told her that Savonarola was a fraud, and she demanded that the Signora allow her to confront Savonarola, so they could have what I think would have been a profit competition. Her fame became widespread enough that Duke Ercole of Ferrara and King Charles VIII sent agents to talk with her. Tellingly, the Signora didn't dare to move against her, and instead just pressured her convent into keeping her from speaking with the general public. But the real threat to Savonarola wasn't from within, but from without. His relationship with Pope Alexander had never been on a good footing. A big part of the problem was that Savonarola claimed to be receiving prophetic visions directly from God, which, according to the Catholic Church's rules, was an issue if the prophecies were 
not about spiritual affairs, but about worldly affairs, like, say, whether or not a certain French king would invade Italy. Even then, the relatively tolerant Pope Alexander probably would have left Savonarola alone, if not for the fact that Savonarola had sided with Alexander's enemy, Charles VIII. This, along with Savonarola's real influence over Florence, made him a genuine threat, and not just a nuisance. But Alexander was clever and approached the Savonarola problem cautiously. First, he wrote directly to Savonarola, gently but firmly asking him to come to Rome so that he may talk about his prophecies. Savonarola sensed a trap and wrote back, He has always wanted to see Rome to venerate the holy places and pay reverence to his holiness, especially now that the Pope had summoned him, worm that he is. But he regrets that he is unable to comply. For one thing, he has been in poor health. It's worth pointing out that around the same time, Savonarola had written a letter to his friend saying that he was just struggling with his, quote, usual stomach problems. Savonarola had to have known that his claims to be a modern-day prophet made him vulnerable to charges of heresy, but if anything, he doubled down. Savonarola even had a book published, The Compendium of Revelations, which collected together all the prophecies he made during his lifetime, along with an essay he penned himself defending the authenticity of his predictions. The friar argued he knew his prophecies were true and not lies from the devil, because all of his predictions had come true, especially his prophecy that a new Cyrus would come over the mountain. This prophecy, referring to the Persian emperor who liberated the Israelites from Babylonian rule, was vague enough it really covered Savonarola's bases, but of course he interpreted it as a prediction of Charles VIII's invasion of Naples. He even wrote about a vision that he had spoken about in a sermon, during which he visited the Virgin Mary in heaven, accompanied by four embodiments of virtue, faith, patience, prayer, and simplicity. Addressing critics who mocked his vision, Savonarola snippily wrote, they know I do not mean to claim that my mortal body has visited paradise, only that I experienced this in a mental vision. For certain, the trees, streams, doors, and thrones that I describe do not exist in paradise. If these skeptical critics had not been so blinded by their own malice, they would understand how such scenes were placed before my mind's eye by the angels. In this vision, the Virgin Mary told Savonarola, that Florence will be wealthier than ever before, and its borders will reach further than at any point in history. She also confirmed his prediction that the Ottoman Sultan will convert to Christianity. This book went through no fewer than four printings, and copies were sold in Paris and southern Germany. It was said that even the Ottoman Sultan had a copy translated into Turkish, although unfortunately we don't know what his reaction to the prediction that he would become a Christian was. Also in the book, Savonarola threatened that if anyone did not believe in his prophecies, they risked damnation. This is likely what led Alexander VI to remark, 
We have heard that a certain Girolamo Savonarola from Ferrara of the Order of Preachers is delighted with the novelty of a perverse dogma, and in the same insanity of mind, is misled by the shift of affairs of Italy, so that without any canonical authority, he attests among the people that he has been sent by God and speaks with God against the canonical decrees. Now, it is true that Alexander had an axe to grind against Savonarola for political reasons, but I don't think most popes would have been okay with a random friar saying he knew some of the people who would spend an eternity in hell, and by the way, those damned people would just so happen to be the same folks who disagree with his predictions. Matters escalated when Savonarola received a letter from Bartolomeo Floridi, a bishop, papal secretary, and someone who would, some years down the road, die in a dungeon because he had a penchant for forging papal documents. Possibly at the behest of the Medici, he wrote a letter to Savonarola in the Pope's name, accusing him of heresy, and again meddling in the politics of the Franciscan orders of northern Italy. In the letter, he ordered him to stop preaching until a full papal investigation into his words and practices could take place. Savonarola immediately fired back, claiming he'd always been submissive to the church and committed no heresy. As for claiming that he was a prophet, whom people had to believe or else they would face the wrath of God, he wrote, With regards to prophecy, I have absolutely never made any claim to be a prophet. However, it would not be heresy were I to do so, for I have foretold things that have already come to pass, and the other things I have foretold will be proven when they come to pass in the future. Was that wrong? <laughs> Should I not have done that? I tell you, I gotta plead ignorance on this thing, because if anyone had said anything to me at all when I first started here, that that sort of thing was frowned upon. <laughs> you know, because I've worked in a lot of offices, and <laughs> I tell you, people do that all the time. <laughs> this is exactly why I wish I was a millionaire, so I could fund a biographical film of Savonarola starring Jason Alexander playing George Costanza as Savonarola. Of course, Savonarola kept preaching despite the ban and refused to cooperate with any papal investigation. But luckily, fate was on Savonarola's side. At the time, Pope Alexander was anxious that Charles might march over the Alps yet again. And if that happened, no amount of papal majesty would save Alexander from Charles's wrath. Never one to let his personal grudges get in the way, Alexander eased up on Savonarola in case he could use the friar as an intermediary between himself and Charles. This did not mean Alexander was willing to let Savonarola completely off his leash, though. He only lifted the band temporarily, so Savonarola could preach sermons for Lent. By August of 1497, there was another failed attempt to bring back the Medici, this time from the inside. Five leading Florentines, Bernardo del Nero, Niccolo Ridolfi, Giannozzo Pucci, Giovanni di Bernardo Cambi, and Pietro's cousin Lorenzo 
Tornabuoni were all implicated in the plot and accused of being in regular contact with the Medici. The odds any conspiracy would have succeeded were slim, and their plans did not get off the ground in any way. Still, a plague was raging across Tuscany at the time, and the economic crisis was only getting worse, so tensions and paranoia were high. The five were condemned to death for treason. Immediately, under a law encouraged by Savonarola, they appealed the sentence. This caused a heated debate in the Great Council, during which shouted arguments and even a fistfight broke out. Also implicated in the investigation was Lenenzo de Magnificent's oldest daughter, Lucrezia, who had stayed behind in Florence with her husband, Jacopo Salviati. Lucrezia confessed she had been in contact with the Exxon Medici, but she bravely refused even under the pressure of her interrogators to implicate her husband. Not only that, it was also known that she had been giving financial support to efforts to restore the Medici. Yet she was not only spared, but not exiled from Tuscany. Likely enough, even the most rapidly anti-Medici voices in the Great Council, like Francesco Valoli, didn't dare to bring the full weight of the law down on a woman, even one who was pretty much openly plotting to bring her family back in power. It's an interesting example of how women could take advantage even of a system that saw them as total political non-entities. The men involved in the plot, however, were not nearly as fortunate. Their appeal was barely voted down, and all five of them were beheaded. Savonarola actually seems to have stayed out of the controversy, although later writers spread the rumor that Savonarola personally asked for their deaths. Regardless, Machiavelli, who did live in Florence during the height of Savonarola's prominence, would make the case that the executions of the five were a turning point. After all, the anti-Medici factions gave their supporters something they needed. Actual martyrs. If the executions of the five were a sign of danger, Savonarola did not heed it. Instead, he refused any olive branch that Pope Alexander extended him. Instead, in his sermon, Savonarola would compare Rome to Babylon and predicted, The light will vanish, and amidst the darkness the sky will rain fire and brimstone, while flames and great boulders will smite the earth because Rome has been polluted with an infernal mixture of scripture and all manner of vice. He also angrily denounced a certain you who spent his nights with his mistress, and then conducted mass the next morning. That you had to have been Pope Alexander. Such sermons were distressing enough to the Signora that they actually talked Savonarola down. At their insistence, Savonarola wrote to the Pope, Information has been relayed to His Holiness, both by letter and by word of mouth, that I have been criticizing him for sinful behavior. This is not true. As it is written in the Bible, Thou shalt not curse thy ruler. I have never done such a thing, and I have definitely never referred to anyone by name. 
whilst preaching from this pulpit. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> that last part was technically true, to be fair, but it was obvious to everyone that Savonarola was flaunting his defiance of the Pope. Alexander may have hoped that the situation would have sorted itself out by the Bigi or the Arabiati coming to power in Florence and doing something about this troublesome friar. But with Charles still in France and showing no signs of launching another expedition, the risks were being outweighed by the slights Savonarola kept reigning on the papacy. Worse, Alexander learned an Arabiati government did gain a majority of seats in the Great Council, but they still did not lift a finger against Savonarola. So Alexander acted himself. In May of 1497, Pope Alexander excommunicated Savonarola on suspicion of heresy. If you expected that this would cause Savonarola to finally go to Rome and throw himself on the Pope's mercy, or at least back down and hope Pope Alexander would turn his attention elsewhere, well, you don't know Girolamo Savonarola. Join us next week for the exciting conclusion of the Savonarola podcast in Buonanotte.